You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I will be your host, Abraham. And I will be your recording partner, Shane. (laughs) I like that. It's a good title. Yeah. Okay, so let's begin with an acknowledgement. At the time that we're recording this, it's only going to be a few weeks out from a lot of the events, and maybe they'll still be going on at the time that this happened, but there have been protests around the country. This is all in the wake of the killing of George Floyd. And so we are planning a couple of discussions around this topic. Shane, you're taking on talking about specifically protesting. Yeah, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about how to maintain your safety during protesting and and some different steps that are the best ways to approach a, let's say, a, maybe a powder keg of a situation and the best ways to remain safe just from like a strategic point of view. And we're going to try and push those near the top of the feed to get them out relatively quickly once they're all done. It's even possible to proceed this one having come out. But just to say that we we support the Black Lives Matter movement and we want to support everyone who has you know a relevant and, and relative position to, to what's going on, who feels that they need a platform and they need a voice. And we want to be in support of that. So and a big part of that is, you know, there's no perfect way to go forward with this. We are trying to take steps and do what we can. So we are listening. We will make sure to use our platform to support and to do our best. So hopefully, you know, within that space, you know, we can, we can help kind of support that change and help with the scaffolding that is going to support any sort of movement in that realm. So we're going to do our best. It's not going to be perfect. We're probably going to slip up. I try to tell people all the time, you know, like this is something that is a fairly unprecedented event and kind of like a current culture. So we are actively working to figure out the best steps for our organization and the way that we can use this platform to best support that movement. So, and it'll probably evolve as we go. Yeah. Boy, 2020 has been a year. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, nothing I've ever experienced before. Yeah. Just so everybody's aware, you know, there's still murder hornets out there. (laughs) Jeez. Obviously this is more important, but we also don't want to forget there's murder hornets and that Australia was on fire for a little bit oh, and yeah. that there's rumblings around Yellowstone that they're talking about. There's stuff going on there. And now in, I live in Florida and it's hurricane season. So somebody needs to reset this year. Yeah. Failed attempt. Multiple failures. Start over. Yeah. This is like a series of bad timelines. Like I feel like this is quantum leap, but all the nightmare verses, like all the bad situations he ended up in. Would you call it a series of unfortunate events? <laughs> well, freaking <laughs> Lemony Snicket. <laughs> All right. So we do have a, a somewhat lighthearted topic, I think, although it is a deep and historied topic for sure. And so let's start with Shane. Have you ever dreamt about something? Oh, yes. I, <laughs> as a matter of fact, I have very intense dreams and none of them ever make sense. None of them are ever realistic. And I talk in my sleep. A couple that come to mind would be that one time I talked about being a DJ, but I had gained a lot of weight. And so I said this out loud in my sleep. I said I was so fat that if I were a DJ, my name would be DJ Calories. (laughs) Jeez. Wow. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. And then the other dream I had that I always remember is I was part of a superhero team that had to stop Hans Gruber from turning (laughs) Axel Rose's corpse into the world's largest shark. Wow. That's... You have some very fascinating dreams. Uh, That's me. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? 
Oh yeah, I definitely have had a lot of dreams. I've never had lucid dreams, and also apparently a lot of people, maybe even the majority of people, report that they often have dreams about things where it's either work or school, and it's something gone wrong. Like they showed up and they forgot a report, or they a common one, they showed up and they realized they were naked or not wearing some important piece of clothing or something happened. And I feel like I very rarely have that kind of dream. And I actually have something that's almost the opposite, where I will have a dream that I got like an email or a phone call from work and they're like, oh, hey, you didn't have to do that thing that was really stressing you out or, hey, we're going to go ahead and cover your shift. You don't have to come in today. And then I wake up and I'm like, oh, that really happened? Oh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, everyone gets to wake up and although they, they wake up in a panic and cold sweat, they get to experience relief where I wake up with excitement and joy and get to experience disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a tough existence <laughs> it's not all the time it's just i feel like i rarely have dreams about school or work you know i i think i have had a few here and there but just not very many but is that something you've experienced yeah i used to give change back in my sleep give change like go to your like wallet and like find change and like <laughs> no like not like i would i would like i would say like oh here's your change da 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 like here's you oh know, gotcha 740 is your change or something like that i would do that because i used to i used to work at starbucks I, don't, I can't think of a time that i really had any dreams about work currently but yeah i mean historically especially when i worked in like food service and customer service absolutely would have those dreams probably too often wow yeah so Kyle helped prepare the notes for this one, and he mentioned specifically that he tried to go to a psychic to interpret his dreams, but every time he got to the point of interpretation, they wanted to charge him, and it was like $30 for 30 minutes was the, the best rate that he even found, and so he's sort of like, no thanks. And it's interesting, too, because the psychics had a ton of reviews, so people were helping them stay in business, and that illuminates, I think, the even nature of the conversation we're having today is this thing that we all do, this dreaming experience that everybody, or as far as I know, almost everybody has in some capacity, we're kind of almost obsessed with knowing what and why is that's going on. And I think part of it is because they're so weird most of the time. But also, like I think that people have used this experience to launch a business about the relative importance of that experience and what it might mean. And going back just to the idea of Plato, who we're going to, to discuss here in a moment, but this whole like the the allegory of the caves and that like what we experience is not but a shadow of reality and that everything has this sort of, I guess, otherworldly reality that actually is happening and so i think that mystical approach that we so often have as a species helps drive that perpetuation toward when we experience something that feels surreal like a dream then anybody who is willing to sell us a story about it we're willing to pay them a dime for it or 30 bucks yeah. in this case yeah yeah 30 bucks in this case yeah you know it's funny i think about that too because i think i think human beings just are naturally curious about the universe within them as well as outside of them. But I think also too, we tend to have this, and this is just me spitballing on this, but I feel like as part of that curiosity, we have this need to put meaning to everything that happens. And I think what ends up happening is we assign 
meaning to everything that we experience. And as a result, now we've created this whole like pathway to interpreting dreams or this whole pathway to spirituality and, and all these different ways to go about trying to make sense of the universe around us. That's a great point. And it is kind of tangentially related to a discussion we have had on here about how we are sort of problem solvers. That's something that our species has historically had to do is sort of solve problems. And that's sort of forced us to get good at it. And so when we don't have problems, it's like we take things that aren't problems and we make them problems so that we can solve them. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And I think that's kind of that might be a little bit of what's going on here, at least in part, is that with dreams, it's like this is just a thing that happens. But if we don't have bigger challenges to face, then we now want to turn that into a problem so that we can solve it. And here we are. Here we are. And that's why we have these questions that we're going to ask. So some questions we're going to try and ask and answer in this discussion include, but are not limited to, (laughs) (laughs) what is the historical interpretation of why we dream? Yeah. We're also going to ask, what does current neurological research tell us about dreaming and that whole approach? And where does the sort of behaviorism position on this, what is the, the position that behaviorism would take as opposed to some of the more popular views or the ones that are at least maybe more well-known, such as the psychoanalytic view of dreams. We're going to dig into this. It's going to be fun. So a common definition of this is a series of thoughts, images, and sensations occurring in a person's mind during sleep. You can also speak more generally as just an experience of like imagery or almost hallucination during sleep. And I think someone might be wanting to challenge the idea that it has to occur during sleep because we often refer to dreaming while perfectly awake and lucid in this sort of daydreaming idea. In that case, it's often talked about as sort of an ambition, an ideal, or even just mind-wandering, I guess, sort of imagination, if you will. Yeah, and I was reading something not too long ago, and this is probably something we could dig into in an episode where some people can't imagine stuff. Like they can't imagine things. They don't have the ability to create pictures in their heads to like conceptualize things. Yeah. Aphantasia is what that one That's was what called. It is. Yeah. 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 Well, and the, and the definition of that is so fuzzy that it's hard to say where people fall on that because nobody actually has pictures in their minds that would imply a second set of eyeballs and like a screen with a projector inside your head that happens. And that's just not how that works. But people can respond with respect to imagery that is verbally constructed, and yet we can appreciate what the visual features of that verbally constructed thing would be were it to exist. And that's not dissimilar to what we're talking about in dreams. And historically, the explanation of dreams has shifted between divine or theological significance to biological, physiological significance. And of course, psychological sort of mind stuff significance. And if you recall, during our last discussion that we had in our Halloween episodes, in our month of October, we did all these sort of horror-themed episodes. We did one on the succubus, and this was the idea that when people experience sleep paralysis and they have the experience of being awake, even though they aren't fully awake, they feel like they're awake. So they're almost dreaming. They're like right at that stage of waking up. And they have the experience of being paralyzed and unable to move. And so the interpretation of that was that there was a demon sitting on their chest. And that has been replaced in more modern times. Well, first it was witches. And now you have things like aliens, extraterrestrials, I should say, maybe, as the explanation for it. And ghosts is another common one. Oh, ghosts. 
So before what's described as the Hellenic period, dreams were actually tied to some kind of theological significance. And they actually proved to be, or not proved to be, but were viewed as some kind of divine process, some kind of divine experience relevant to something unseen or some kind of spiritual phenomenon. So you had this approach where dreams were either, you know, some kind of, they were prophesizing, they were theological, they had to do something with something that wasn't currently worldly. And you needed essentially zero credentials to be able to act as a mediator of these dreams. And so, for example, Daniel in the biblical Old Testament was considered a very wise man because he interpreted the dreams of kings. And I think he was a very cunning person, potentially, and he found a niche to capitalize on so that he could live comfortably and, you know, more power to him, I guess. But yeah, you can see sort of the history of the importance of this. Yeah, and you can see it too. I mean, they do reference Jesus' birth as being foretold by Joseph in a dream in the New Testament. So you see that description of how dreams play a role in prophecy and and just kind of how it's like interlinked into all this these important events. Yeah, so you, you look back at these and these people considered educated and wise, and they were often the most guilty perpetrators of pseudoscientific endeavors, or at least now we would consider them pseudoscientific. And even mathematicians in the 16th century, before there was really a difference between astronomy and astrology, they were interpreting stars and what their meaning was and that sort of thing. So it's an interesting historical look, I guess. I love the uh, the idea of interpretation. Right. I mean, that just feels like it, it has led to so many things you're like, I mean, now we have interpretive dance, but that's a different... <laughs> That's different than interpreting the stars to describe fate, right? It is actually a good point that we should probably talk about interpretation, generally speaking, and specifically because of what is entailed in the kind of skills and and required history, I guess, or background knowledge to take on something like that. Because it's like, you can do this from an educated perspective. So for example, interpreting data is one type of interpreting, but then there's interpreting languages, which is a different type of interpreting. And then there's interpreting like events into their supernatural meanings as a different type. But the whole endeavor itself is superimposing one type of language over one type of event, which I think is really cool. So anyway, way off track. That's a discussion for another time, but I think that we should take that on. Yeah, that would be a fun one. So speaking of languaging and speaking of like interpretation and speaking of all this fun stuff, we should probably talk about the Hellenistic period, where we talk about Greek philosophers. The most notorious interpreters of all. <laughs> oh, forms. <laughs> forms always get in the way. So, you know, there was a point in time where human beings started really looking at dreams more critically, and they started looking at them from this analysis and started to wonder if causation could be found in the more physical world rather than the non-physical. So they started to take these dreams and philosophize about them. And, you know, what we were talking about before is kind of like proto dream interpretation, this is kind of where dream interpretation really starts taking a hold. Going back to Plato, you know, he theorized that dreams were the result of over-gratification or frustration of our internal organs. So for example, too much wine equals an angry liver equals weird dreams. And I mean, if anybody's ever <laughs> passed out drunk and had strange dreams, maybe he is not wrong. Yeah. I mean, I've had like some pretty spicy food and had some pretty wacky dreams. So I guess that's my stomach telling me, what the hell are you doing, dude? Stomach or colon, maybe? All of it. All of it. So, <laughs> you know, and Aristotle, too, whose viewpoints were often a little more empirical in nature than his teacher Plato's, 
What he stated was that dreams were images from our past experiences, not divine in nature, but more psychological, which is actually, I'm okay with that interpretation. I'm, I'm okay with that perspective on that so far. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was kind of an empiricist here, so he, he had some useful things to contribute that when you do empirical work, it tends to hold up over time. And we'll speak more to what the sort of, we'll speak more to kind of what the zeitgeist is there. But philosophers were beginning to look for evidence and causation within the observable world with respect to understanding dreams as opposed to simply attributing those dreams to spiritual experiences as had been done in the past. Yeah. And so what you found was that many of the phenomena in the natural world had historical patterns. So like they started looking at it from a place that wasn't necessarily spiritual. They were looking at it from some type of pattern, some kind of learning, some kind of experience that the person had. But they did note things like non-physical, spiritual mind stuff. They didn't really find that stuff, though, within this space. So the Northern Lights, for example, were once explained as spiritual beings in a battle and stars were angels and gods. As a matter of fact, before Galileo, Kepler, Tycho, Brahe, and Copernicus, they established a heliocentric universe as opposed to a geocentric, where students were taught that the stars and planets revolved around the Earth, which was false, unless you're a flat earther, then there's a whole different thing going there, and that each were inhabited by its own angels. So what they found was, like, as you start seeing this period, you start seeing they move away from these metaphysical, these mind things, these spiritual things, these non-physical things, and start applying observations to the world, and start applying this, like, more analytic approach to what's actually happening. Do you ever feel like it'd be kind of fun if you could go back in time to periods like this and just say whatever you want and people would treat it as like legitimate scientific truth because you're a white male who could say whatever you wanted and it would be regarded as scientific truth? You know what's funny about that? I don't know that that's changed that much. I mean, look at David Icke. <laughs> We're in that time now. <laughs> We're in that time now. You have a man that's written books about lizard people. And like legitimately believes that human beings are walking around wearing skin masks. So I don't think that we're that far off. I think we're just the content is a little bit different. Well, to be fair, I am wearing a skin mask. Underneath it is not a lizard, though. It's, <laughs> it's just muscle and bone. It's a permanent skin mask. I can't I can't A bunch of it. fatty tissue. Yeah. <laughs> to take it off would be uh, pretty fatal for me or at least extremely painful. So <laughs> it's detrimental to your health. Yeah. It's holding all my parts together. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> let's jump forward in time a little bit to what might be called the Middle Ages. And this is, again, sort of a step back and looking at dreams as solely spiritual experiences. I believe that looking at this period of time through this lens is sort of a European-centric way of viewing it, because there were a lot of cultures in the world doing a lot of other things at this time that were much more scientific than what was going on in what was sort of European Middle Ages, where they had walked back into the caves and figured that being cave people was a lot better than being educated. I'm just joking. It really, that was a, a metaphor for their academic orientation, not they weren't actually living in caves. They, anyway, let's just move on from that. <laughs> and so this sort of lines up with the main themes of the Middle Ages, such as an increase in religion, obviously the main one being Christianity. There was also a lot of increase in sort of pagan countries. There were the crusades going on. So there was a return to spirituality and mysticism that was pervasive, at least in the sort of European centric view of history at that period of time. Yeah. And also to kind of orient everybody to the idea of science around this time too, there was not a lot of, let's say maybe knowledge about certain 
aspects of the natural world in general, or maybe it wasn't acknowledged as much. So for example, plague doctors that would go around and start treating anybody during the bubonic plague would treat open sores using a paste of human feces and spices. So they would kind of slop that into a wound and hopefully that would help prevent the spread of disease. Uh. I know. Obviously we know that's not the case. So like kind of keeping that perspective in mind too, at this time, nobody was really like science rules. There was no Bill Nye to champion the cause. (laughs) That's right. Beacon of light. (laughs) The well-known St. Thomas Aquinas brought back some ideals from that Aristotelian philosophy that we had sort of talked about that suggested that dreams could either come from somewhere in our body, which of course speaks to the physiological, psychological, or biological cause or they could come from demons, which is the sort of theological cause. And even though that sounds sort of like a silly dichotomy to present, this was a pretty controversial thing at the time in terms of where you sort of fell on that spectrum. And also keeping in mind that, just as I'd mentioned earlier, at this time, evidence was like, it wasn't really even a thing. Like if you could say, that's demons and that made sense, then that was essentially considered evidence for a lot of people. There's an issue of flawed logic. I mean, you had this like space where like if you could justify it in some kind of linear path and it kind of made sense, people accepted it as true. Like that's how people started to believe that frogs came from rain. Like it would rain and all of a sudden you hear a bunch of frogs and it's like, well, it rains and now frogs are here. So frogs must come from rain. Right. But after all that, you've got the Middle Ages and then you've got all this kind of like craziness going on and people living in cages, but then you've, or caves, I should say, not cages. That's a different topic. Jeez. Now you've got the Renaissance coming up. Okay. So now the Renaissance comes around and the debate started to revolve around the dream coming from the mind or spiritual influences versus biological influences. So now they're getting really into the weeds about this discussion around mind, spirit versus biological processes. And one of the philosophers that was relevant here was Descartes, which for those of you who don't know, looks like it's pronounced Descartes, <laughs> but Descartes, 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 he was a proponent of early Greek philosophies and suggested that animal spirits were capable of flowing through our brains, specifically the pineal gland. So getting a good mix of the science and mysticism there and that this causes imbalances and thus randomness in our dreams and other events. So, I mean, trying to look at relative variables I don't know how one measures animal spirits to determine their effect on dreams, but hey, we're not we're not dealing with the scientific method here. <laughs> so Descartes made arguments from the stance that the mind spiritual realm existed separate from the body, but these realms interacted with biological functions and were contiguous. So basically they were touching, they were interacting, they were connected. And that's certainly not a knockdown or like a like a criticism of the person of Descartes, but he got a lot of things right. Like today the pineal gland is a little bit of a mystery, but we know that it produces melatonin, which aids in our sleep processes. So not far off, but maybe just didn't have enough of an understanding of what that is. And that's like kind of the whole cool thing about science is like what we know today will probably be void in you know, a thousand years. We might have something new that we've learned about some process that we know about today. I hope we learned something in that amount of time. (laughs) Also, I think just pointing out here that this is a good opportunity to recognize people like Descartes that we often try and either villainize people or put them on a pedestal and laud their efforts. And people were complex, you know, they got some things right, they got some things wrong. And it's, there's not really a a black and white clear distinction between when people were doing, doing well and not doing well. It's people had their foibles, people made their mistakes, and they were just people. And so we just got to take it in context that some of 
some of what Descartes contributed was valuable and some of it was not. And we don't, this all or nothing approach, I think is just not useful. Also, foibles is a great word. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> That's going to be my recommendation today. Everybody should say foibles more often. <laughs> so Thomas Hobbes, another philosopher, he, in contrast to Descartes' position, stated that dreams were the product of our senses. That is, information taken in by the senses remained inside of us somewhere until it drifted away into the imagination. So getting back to a more empirical position that we have these experiences, we know that our biology is important to having those experiences, and that therefore that affects our dreams is maybe a generous way of interpreting it, but that's sort of how I read it. Again, this is a, a group of people that are just trying to figure out something without any real way to quantify it. Like they're they're just kind of making guesses about this thing and they're making logical jumps about stuff, but they're not, they don't have any way to like really quantify what they're talking about yet. Yeah. And then you've also got this idea of enlightenment where John Locke basically says that the mind becomes quote disconnected when asleep and retains inherent thoughts that we call dreaming, not divine, but biological. So now we're getting into these spaces where they're still kind of approaching it from the space that there's some kind of biological process or something happening within the body that's producing this thing. Now, as is wants to happen, there are these sort of crests and troughs and waves of empiricism that happened. And following the Enlightenment, we get into modern times, which had both of those things happening simultaneously. And those things being some highly enlightened and some somewhat mystical. And so on the somewhat mystical end of this, we have the well-known Dr. Sigmund Freud. And of course, Freud claimed that dreams were symbolic manifestations of repressed traumatic thoughts or unfulfilled wishes, and that there were we have these defense mechanisms that we have normally aren't really being employed while we sleep. And so those all those repressed thoughts that our defense mechanisms would usually keep down were thought to creep into the dreamer's consciousness, and that's what dreams were. And so you could then interpret dreams by looking at the content of the dream and then extrapolating from that what was happening in the unconscious that was no longer able to control that dream content. Saying all of this is just, it's hard to make my mouth produce those words because how nonsensical it all seems to me. <laughs> yeah. Which brings us to the conversation about dream analysis. Okay. So what was pretty much created out of this was that anybody who was doing dream analysis would identify common symbols within the dreams and link it to something that may not have had anything to do with that thing on any level. So some examples that it brought up are like travel might mean death, boxes, doors, and balconies might mean vagina, snakes, trees, and candy might mean penis. So, I mean, what we find now and kind of what we talk about that is they're, they're pretty arbitrary links they don't really have anything to do with one another whatsoever but that's kind of how the dream analysis kind of approach would go and when people would interpret dreams they would tie things together that didn't really make any sense together well and i mean the common theme obviously being anything that opens was like <laughs> was a vagina and then anything that stood or was elongated and relatively firm was regarded as a penis. And that implies that the, the subconscious way that we think about our genitals are metaphors related to like animals and like human architecture. And that logic to me is already lost. I'm like, if you're going to go into an unrestricted space where you can create anything, why not just imagine vaginas and penises and breasts all over the place? <laughs> like, yeah, what, what's why the make point it complicated? Of, yeah, why symbolize it with those things? It doesn't need to mean anything. <laughs> like, plenty of people have actual sex dreams 
So what is that supposed to symbolize? Yeah. Like you like I had a dream about having sex and you're like, oh, that means that you were thinking of a balcony, really. And it's just like the reverse relation, maybe, is <laughs> is what I'm thinking. It's like you've got a fascination with balconies. You're gonna be an architect one day. Yeah, exactly. So or you have sex and, and it's like you really secretly want to plant a tree in your backyard. This is what's happening. Yeah. Or maybe you're going to open a snake business. I don't know. There's just a lot of just, there's just, it doesn't, it's a lot of work for a little payout. Like what is that? What good is any of that anyway? So that's kind of going back to the idea of its usefulness. We don't, I mean, maybe somebody might find some use in putting meaning to something, but I don't see any sort of empirical use or support for that. And we kind of, don't even really talk about it as much these days. Yeah. So, but then we also have Carl Jung. Okay. Carl Jung stated that dreams were a product of what are called archetypes or the collective unconscious that each human possesses that is derived from our experiences as a species. So dreams, according to Jung, were an avenue to help an individual reach quote self-actualization or oneness with themselves. So it was kind of a way to get in touch with themselves. And I mean, this is, this is all 20th century psychology. So what are you going to do? It's where we are. I don't know that it's actually <laughs> substantially changed from that. I think that there are still plenty of people doing dream analysis and looking at it in a similar way. And that psychology is still trying to wrap its head around it. Although I do feel like there's been a general push toward empiricism, mostly toward neurology in terms of understanding these sorts of things. But I think, you know, just going back to something you'd mentioned about Jung is there is this interesting period in time and Jung wasn't the only one, but where some psychologists believed that our all of our consciousness was this sort of shared ethereal thing is like in the ether, you know, and so that's that's what we'd have these past memories of people and thoughts and ideas that sort of just floated around and would just sometimes make it into our brains. It's a fascinating, bizarre idea that might be worth unpacking the history and the explanation of at some point just to discuss as an episode. I just wanted to throw that out there so that we don't forget. Yeah, I like that. Add it to the list. Okay. All right. So we're recording this on a Sunday. So what do we know about dreams today on Sunday? Well, today, what we know is that dreams occur during REM sleep, but not during non-REM sleep. So it only occurs at certain times during our sleep cycle, which also, just as a cool thing, we understand the sleep cycle now, which we didn't understand at the time that dream analysis was coming up. Not even a little bit. And hey, did you know that the band R.E.M. gets their name for R.E.M. Sleep? I did know that. And also the song Stand is a really great song by them. <laughs> great. Rapid Eye Movement. I don't know if we actually said that, but that's what that stands for. Yeah, so it stands for Rapid Eye Movement. And research has shown that brain activity during dreaming looks nearly identical to brain activity while awake. So that's kind of a cool thing, too. So if you're dreaming, it's pretty identical to what you're experiencing while you're awake. So research has also shown that that dream content can be influenced, which... I think that in particular speaks to the lack of other mystical things that we've spoken to, because presumably if this was something like a, a past event from another lifetime, or this was a prognostication about the future, or if it was a shared consciousness that was drifting around in the ether and entering your, your brain while you slept, then it wouldn't necessarily be influenced by very specific events. But Dement and Wolpert in 1958 presented various stimuli to sleeping participants in a study they were conducting, and the stimuli they presented included sounds, lights, and water. And many of the subjects described those things being present in their dreams after they woke up. And I assume that they had informed consent for participation in this, one would hope. But nevertheless, interesting finding. And I'm sure we've probably all had like that anecdotal 
evidence of that, right? Like we probably heard an alarm in our dream and woke up and our, our alarm was going off. We probably I hear that a lot where people have that anecdotal evidence, but there's it's cool to see that there's actually studies out there. Right. And then there was some very recent studies that just came out about more in the brain activity of participants and how that relates to sort of practice and recent experiences. If you want to take this one on. In a more very recent study by Eichen Laubadal, researchers studied the brain activity of two participants whose brains were connected to a computer with a microchip implant. Also, that sounds like the start of a very dangerous AI type of horror movie. Word. Yeah. So these participants had motor impairments and were part of the BrainGate clinical trials that tested brain control interfaces to assist individuals with tasks such as writing emails, navigating a computer, different things like that. And so what they found was that the researchers were measuring rates of certain neurons while performing tasks such as moving a computer mouse and obtaining data that revealed patterns. Basically, as in these neuron firing spikes equal the mouse moving upward and so on and so forth. So basically, they're mapping these experiences. Yeah. And this is specifically so that you can sell this information to corporations and you can buy things just by thinking about it. So you're like, I want to get a pizza and then a pizza just shows up at your door. And it's really trying to increase laziness as much as humanly possible. I want to think about pizza and it show up at my door. So... That's all I know. I'm totally kidding. Obviously, one of the major implications of this type of research is to provide a system by which people who have some kind of physical or otherwise impairment who can't communicate, advocate for themselves or get what they need can do that. So, for example, if there are people who have a lot of amputated limbs or people who struggle to maybe communicate effectively, if we were to teach them or be able to provide them some kind of machine that allow them to ask for what they need through a computer interface, then that would give them a lot more independence and access to the things that they want that they can advocate for themselves. So it was just a joke about being lazy. Although someone probably (laughs) will use it for that. (laughs) It's bound to happen. It's path of least resistance. Like if I can think about something and it shows up, I'm good with that. Right. No muscle movement whatsoever. I want to be a soft human. (laughs) I already am. After a few observations and recording, the participant that was involved with the study could begin to, quote, imagine moving the mouse and the same neural patterns were present. So they could control the mouse with their minds. Ooh, that sounds like something Elon Musk is super into. There's a lot of people who would be concerned that this means that the reverse is true, that the mind could then be controlled by the computer. But this is it just doesn't work that way. It would be so complicated to try and execute a particular behavior you could be heavily influenced to think certain things by having restricted number of options and whatnot. But just because you can get the mind to control the computer does not mean that the computer will effectively control the mind. It just doesn't work that way. It's way too, our brains are so complicated. Like the machines just can't figure it out. Yeah. We're not anywhere near that. Hopefully maybe at some point that's a possibility, I guess. But as you said, we're, that is way down the horizon. This, this, current technology would not even begin to remotely facilitate anything like that. Right. So to kind of go forward in the study, though, part of the study involved playing a Simon game. So if you're not familiar with Simon, it's a circle with these four quadrants and they're different colors. Simon's a fun game. I love it. And participants are exposed to different sequences of color patterns as part of this game. Yeah, it's basically a memory game. Like it plays a sound illuminated to color and you try and remember the pattern. And the pattern just gets longer and longer. And that's and you can, you can time it, you can compete with other people to remember the longest chains of colors and whatnot, but that's, that's all it is. It's, you know, it's a fun, basic memory game. And so with this game, 
the control sequences are random and not presented repeatedly, but some test sequences were identical and repeated throughout the game. So for example, what they would see is blue, red, red, yellow, red, blue may have been presented several times throughout the game. So they had like one pattern or a few patterns that would be presented multiple times. What would happen is the object would repeat the pattern correctly after the presentation. So they present it and then they would see this pattern presented again if it was correct. And then the participants used their brain controls that had been hooked up to select the correct color in the sequence while doing all that practice. And so they were essentially thinking about and moving the computer in such a way that it would be able to execute on those sequences. Yeah. And then after that, they took naps. Awesome. Yeah. That sounds like the best, best study, study ever. ever. <laughs> right. I just have the exact same thought. <laughs> Jinx. Well, while they're resting, though, the researchers observed similar brain activity to those neural patterns that controlled the repeated sequences. So almost as if the brain were compartmentalizing those experiences, like kind of like putting them away, like kind of just organizing the information that they had, those experiences that they had. And they noticed a higher correlation the more that there were those repeated sequences, which is to say that there was more visible activity the more they had the same pattern presented. Does that make sense? Yeah. So ultimately what they're kind of figuring out is the brain is replaying those learned sequences while resting and not in REM sleep. So the brain is still active and engaged with those sequences that they had been exposed to. Which this is a little bit different of a topic, but speaks to the hypotheses about why animals need sleep is that it's the sort of consolidation of experiences is one of the, the hypotheses about why animals sleep at all. Because it's kind of a weird thing if you think about it, that for some reason we just become unconscious for like a quarter of the day or, you know, something like that. And that every single living thing does this to some extent for the most part. I don't think there are any non-examples except maybe bacteria. I don't know if bacteria sleep. Well, honestly, I don't know that they know enough about bacteria to know if they sleep or not. That's a fair point. I need to look this up because this is just random fact, but I believe that giraffes only sleep for like 20 minutes a day or something like that. Hmm. Like there, there are some animals that sleep very, very little and some, some animals that sleep a ton and then hibernation, I think is its own thing, but it is just thinking about it. It's just a weird thing that we do that. It's like, and I'm temporarily unconscious for a period of time. And it's like, why, why not just be productive for a lot more time? Yeah. It's very odd. I mean, Batman has trained himself to sleep for 15 second micro sleeps during the day. So like he's, he's got some stuff figured out. Is that Canon? Are you making that up? I think that's Canon. Okay. I think it is. I don't know. Somebody somebody fact check me. <laughs> if you're going to fact check anything at all, that's, that's the thing to fact check. All right. Now we get to the discussion that I think is maybe the most pertinent for this whole entire topic, which I guess that's not fair. It all was. We just needed to cover a lot of history and talk about some of the research. But this is how do we really break this down as empirically as possible? And that's always going to be the behaviorism approach because it is founded in empiricism. And that's what separates it from most of the other psychological fields is it treats all events as a natural science and therefore adheres to basic philosophical assumptions, one of which being determinism. And one famous behaviorist, William Baum, we're paraphrasing him here, but he said behavior essentially is a natural event, just like a volcano or an earthquake end quote. It was a paraphrase anyway. But <laughs> but the point being that when we talk about behavior, we talk about it as a thing that exists in nature and is not otherwise influenced by other mystical events. And therefore, it stands apart from talking about this. There's the weird separation of like the mind-body dichotomy and that sort of thing. 
Yeah, and so as we kind of dig into this, one thing we want to look at is this idea of the Pavlovian and Skinnerian approaches or experiments to dreams that actually demonstrated a couple different things that had to do with this. So first of all, there are studies out there and plenty of others that demonstrate that neutral stimuli or stimuli that or cues that we don't have any experiences with can actually take on evocative effects of control behavior. So basically you see this cue, it's going to kind of make you respond or like you're going to respond to certain cues when they do arise. And so, and this can explain things like why we quote, see without the presence of the thing we see. So Skinner talks about that in behaviorism and science and human behavior. So this kind of gets to the idea of perception and it can be conceptualized as responding in the absence of a stimulus or a cue. So that's when we start kind of creating images in our mind. That's when we start thinking about things. That's when we start conceptualizing stuff and kind of doing all those things is because we can create images, hypothetical images, we should say, without having to have the cue in front of us. And that sets us apart from a lot of different organisms. Right. And so just to say that in another way, because I think this is, it's a topic that we talk a lot about and it's important. And I'm always trying to find the best way to communicate this is these cues that are out there. They're basically, there are things that remind us of things. You can think of them as reminders is one way or they they're sort of like they trigger a particular thought memory event or sequence and so it's like there might be a lyric to a song that you like and you're outside and you just happen to notice something that's around you that is perfectly described by that lyric you're familiar with and all of a sudden you find yourself humming that song and it's like that song wasn't playing. The band wasn't there. The name of the song wasn't even mentioned, but there was one particular cue that was related and it substituted for the actual cue itself and served as a reminder to get you then thinking about processing that event in the same way. And that's true of all of our experiences. Whenever we have those experiences, some of the cues that are there, some of the stimuli and some of the events that are present, those can then they can substitute for that event itself and sort of serve as a reminder down the road. And we can't even necessarily pinpoint what that is, but nevertheless, we find ourselves experiencing something where that thing isn't there in front of us. And as you said, that's something that's unique about us. And so we might hear songs from an enjoyable concert and sort of be playing them over in our minds well after that concert's over, or we might smell, you know, grandma's cooking long after grandma's passed away when we get those sort of substitute reminders, if you will. And this also plays a role in traumatic experiences too. So maybe after something that you've experienced, or I mean, I think of experiences that I had when I was a kid where, you know, not even a kid, like when I started in my career and some of the experiences that I had with learners that I worked with, like those are traumatic experiences and thinking you can play it over and over and over again in your head, right? That experience of like reliving a trauma, reliving an experience are all part of that kind of that experience of having those cues, having those reminders. Another one I think of too is anytime I see a picture, I think of Nickelback's song photograph. <laughs> that is a long running joke that kind of fell off the radar. So I'm glad that it's back. <laughs> Never forget. <laughs> Never forget. Never forget. So, <laughs> so we do these things, you know, we, we experience these things, but sometimes too, we have to also be mindful that this behavior of dreaming or this behavior of uh, this experience could be punished. So daydreaming at work or school, you can get a reprimand dancing or singing to a song in your head might get some odd looks, right? If I'm walking around singing Nickelback's photograph, people are going to stare at me strange or maybe furrow their brow or drugs and alcohol actually might lessen the punishing effect of these contingencies. So that's why we might behave a certain way under those influences, right? That's why you see drunk people do things that are a 
little that they wouldn't do when they're sober because maybe those punishing effects, those experiences are less problematic or less aversive. So yeah, great point. And similarly, while sleeping, there is no threat or little threat of punishment for doing those same sort of things that would otherwise be sort of looked at sort of weird, like singing photograph. And so furthermore, there are usually very few other, (laughs) there are very few other things while we're sleeping that would compete with or influence those events, which is to say our eyes are closed We're usually in a quiet room that's also usually dark, so we don't have visual, auditory, tactile, kinesthetic, or other experiences that are likely to influence those, and there's no one else around. There might be one or two other people, depending on how you set up your sleeping arrangement, but there are (laughs) otherwise no, or there are very few, cultural or social circumstances that will influence when you're alone and falling asleep. Right. So there's nothing that's getting in the way, which is like... A pretty interesting thing. And as we start conceptualizing this even more, like one thing we kind of have to make sure we state to everybody is that one of the reasons we can identify this even as a behavior, dreaming as a behavior in itself, is because it does involve those biological processes. Those neurological things are happening. It involves all these different things that a dead person cannot do, right? So it is technically identified as a behavior because it does involve a lot of things that a dead person literally cannot do a dead person cannot dream right frankenstein's monster cannot dream (laughs) that's fair and if it's something that that we do then we know that it is in fact influenced by our experiences our history and our biology because that's that's the behavior's perspective that we are biological organisms interacting with our environment around us and so that means that we can account for it it's just difficult because it's so private and as as we described when it occurs there are so few other circumstances around that are influencing it, that I think that's, as you said, getting in the way, that sort of means that it's much more available to be random, sporadic, and seem kind of bizarre and weird because there is so little restriction on what can happen, even though we have all the available resources to produce a behaving activity, if you will. Yeah. So to continue forward about dreaming, we do have to talk about Carl Sagan, right? Because he's probably said something about a whole lot of stuff one of the heroes of the show i think oh yeah no carl sagan's great so carl sagan in the demon haunted world notes that dreaming and hallucinating are similar physiological events right so essentially what they're seeing is that if you're dreaming it's kind of something that's happening within the brain within the mind the imagination type of thing hallucinating kind of has that same type of experience may not be quite the same but it's similar enough so and what they found was the studies have shown that one key difference between hallucinating and dreaming is that hallucinations are often, quote, more realistic or overlaid on reality. So basically a finding that supports the idea that dreaming is an operant response or a learned thing. It is influenced by your learning history and your experience. And we have another behaviorist to reference here who described dreaming. Jim Johnston in his book, Radical Behaviorism for ABA Practitioners. This is kind of a long one, so I'm going to go through it at a clipped pace, if you will. But he said, quote, seeing in our dreams is not apparently different from seeing under other circumstances in which the things seen are weak or not present at all, including those times when we say we are seeing a visual image or when we are daydreaming. Absent the level of stimulus control otherwise available when we are awake, it is not surprising that what we see in our dreams is disjointed or even nonsensical. The critical role of stimulus control is easily observed when we are lying in bed dozing during the last few minutes before we must get up. Whatever we are seeing in our dreams immediately disappears when we open our eyes. 
our seeing behavior is instantly under the influence of whatever visual stimuli are present, end quote. And so that, I think, helps to tie together all of the things that we've sort of talked about in terms of how do we account for this both biologically and experientially and make sense of it. Yeah, for sure. Like, I couldn't say it better myself. So this this stance is perfect. It has no flaws. That's what we're getting at. So <laughs> behavioral approaches to dreaming, nailed it. I mean, I think at the end of the day, we have to just be mindful that there are problems with the behavioral stance because it is complicated. Objective data is a little bit challenging. This dreaming in itself and the idea of anything that happens within the skin that's not observable by somebody else immediately lends itself to a higher level of complexity. We can't observe it in a way that we would observe normal behavior or any sort of empirical phenomenon that we see in the world right now. It's, it's very complex. And that actually makes it very difficult to understand on some levels. Well, we've yet to find a really good way to be able to experimentally manipulate dependent variables or independent variables and what kind of dependent variables we would then measure to be able to arrange a convincing scientific description of dreaming in such a way that would be satisfactory because we like we don't even have access to those things. So it's really difficult to do. And it, you're going to have a subjective measure almost no matter what. Absolutely. It would be subjective. I mean, there's just no, there's just nothing right now. We're just not at that space. And we're, I mean, we're closer now than we were a hundred years ago, a couple thousand years ago, right? Like we're, we're closer now to understanding it, but even then we still, this is one of those areas that lends itself to a lot of just, there's just not enough. There's just not enough there. I mean, it's just a very difficult concept to empirically study. Hopefully we'll get there. If for no other reason, then it's interesting. <laughs> Fingers crossed. All right. Some take home points. So. We don't know everything about dreaming. We can relatively confidently say that most of the hypotheses about it coming from angels, demons, other theological things, mystical events, the shared consciousness in the ether are not correct. But I think we can say that what we definitely know about dreams are that these are biological events that are influenced by our experiences. Yeah, I couldn't say it better myself. I mean, that's really where we're at. That's my primary take home point is like, it's a behavior and we just don't know enough about it. Yeah. And then we can also say that for the most part, I don't think that there is any utility in trying to interpret dreams as having any real substantial meaning. There's no evidence to suggest that that has led to a particularly productive line of inquiry or facilitated anything beyond. There might be some people here and there where they were inspired to take on some action because of dream interpretation. But I don't think that that was endemic to dreams themselves. I think that that could have been anybody who sat down and said, listen, like you're holding yourself back. You could be doing more than you. You're more, you're capable of more than you think you're giving yourself credit for. And so I think that anything that has positive that's come out of dream interpretation has been circumstantial and is not, like I said, endemic to dream interpretation itself. Agreed. And dreams are fun. Like, Lean into it. Yeah, that's fun <laughs> stuff. So dream journal and just use that to tell short stories. Yeah, actually, I definitely know. And it's unfortunate Ryan could have spoken to this too, but he tried to train himself to lucid dream and he was keeping a dream journal for a while and he had like this weird equipment he wore on his head. I don't remember why, but it had to do with like trying to teach himself to recognize or like put into place relevant cues so that he could then influence his dreams in a particular way. And if anybody else has done that, hmm. I would love to hear stories about that. So if you are someone who messes around with a dream journal or you are trying to influence your dreams or you have some success doing this, please let us know. We'd be really happy to talk to you or at least share your story. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that would be a really great discussion. So we're looking forward to that. You dream interpreters. 
<laughs> Do you have anything else on dreams, Mr. Shane? Nope. I am. I'm feeling pretty good. I should say Dr. Shane. <laughs> okay, cool. Then let's go ahead and move on and tackle some recommendations. Recommendations. I will speak for Kyle, who did the notes on this. So before we even move on, big shout out to Kyle for his awesome preparation and notes. These were very easy to access and read and really well put together. So thanks for a great job on that. Kyle recommends Hank Schlinger on consciousness. And there's a YouTube video in which he describes this. I believe that I've seen this video. I think it's really cool. So I will uh, post that in the show notes. Sounds good. He also recommends William Baum on spirituality, also a YouTube video that I'll put in the show notes. Sounds good. Okay, so my recommendation this week is just something that I rediscovered recently, <laughs> which is just <laughs> peanut butter and celery. And if, <laughs> if you're not allergic to peanuts or peanut butter, that is, peanut butter is one of my absolute favorite foods. And it goes well on so many things, but man, a nice crisp stock of celery with some crunchy peanut butter is just one of the greatest snacks. And it just... It just makes the day better. So if that's something that you're into, that is something I highly recommend. I have been thinking about this debate a lot because I've been eating a lot of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches lately. Good boy. Yeah, so good. So good. But the debate about like what type of peanut butter and what type of jelly to use. And I think that we could probably throw this to a poll to our listeners and see where we get this. Like crunchy or smooth would be my peanut butter discussion, right? Crunchy. Crunchy is the answer. Yeah. That's, see, that's why we that's why we work well so well together. <laughs> that's because right. we we align on that value. That's a value. That's not a preference. That's a value. <laughs> exactly. But I do want to hear other people's opinions. So let's get the great peanut butter and jelly debate raging. What's your jelly of choice? Grape is my jelly. Okay. Grape would also be my jelly. I don't use a lot of jelly. I actually prefer peanut butter all by its lonesome though, because <laughs> Jelly can get a little too sweet for me, so I'm pretty conservative with my jelly use, but grape jelly is the way to go for sure. That's it. That's why we work so well together. That's right. All right. So my recommendation this week is an organization. In light of everything that's going on, one thing that I try to always do is try to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. So one thing I really want to make sure that we do as part of kind of progressing forward is this idea of providing organizations and so that, that can help support systemic change. And so my recommendation this week is an organization called the Sentencing Project. You can find them at sentencingproject.org. And basically this organization is designed to help improve the criminal justice system by promoting reforms to sentencing policies specific to racial disparities and, and really help to try to do some research and publication around improving how the system works. So what they do is they will, they'll go in and they'll advocate for people who are wrongly convicted. They will get people out of prison who are wrongly convicted. They'll help with appeals. They'll work. They do a lot of different things from the front end, all the preventative strategies and all the back end stuff, which is all the, the help and support and stuff like that. So they're really worth checking out anything that you can provide. They do accept donations and it's just, a, they're just a really great organization that I believe pretty strongly. in. so hopefully y'all dig it. If not, I mean, cause I know a lot of people have a hard time with like trying to figure out where to start with advocacy work or activism work. And so maybe this is just a place to, that you can start. Do you ever listen to System of a Down? I used to a whole lot. For some reason, what you're talking about reminded me of that song, the the prison song that's like on the beginning of the album Toxicity. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's this like whole bridge in the middle where he's talking about how the current system is sort of, well, basically he's just saying that 
like uh, with drug offenders specifically who are prison and how ineffective that is. But it just reminded me of that. So yeah, maybe that's a bonus recommendation is go listen to the prison song by System of a Down. <laughs> I like it. All right, cool. Well, if you have any stories about dreaming, peanut butter, or the sentencing project, or or consciousness, or anything else, please feel free to reach out to us. We really like to get the great debate raging around uh, crunchier cream of peanut butter and grape jelly versus all inferior jellies, and just have that conversation take place. We'd also like to hear from you if you have any stories about any of the things that we mentioned. If you just want to shout out, give us a shout out, tell us hi, let us know how you heard of us, suggest a, another topic you'd like us to discuss at some point in the future. All those are things we like to hear and we would like to interact with everybody who wants to interact with us. So feel free to reach out. And in the meantime, you can always hit us up on various social media platforms and our emails info at www.wwdpodcast. That's also our handle pretty much everywhere else. And yeah, I think I think that's all I get. Leave us a rating and review. We are setting up a merch store. Um, I actually just ordered a face mask for myself with the Why We Do What We Do logo on it. And we have commissioned some new merch that will hopefully be getting set up pretty soon. So we'll announce that at some point and you'll be able to get access to that. But yeah, I think that's all I got. You got anything else, Dr. Shane? Nope, that's it, Dr. Abraham. Okay, thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time. This is Abraham. This is Shane. We're out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.